HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Ben to Table, a monthly food subscription service for avid home cooks focused on delicious and sustainable pantry items. Learn more at bentotable.com. That's B-E-N-T-O-T-A-B-L-E.com. And when you use code HRN for a new subscription, you get $20 off and HRN gets $10. And so sorry you got cut off. You're seeing that, yeah, that notification Dave, as well, Matt? Dave, yeah. Dave Arnold dropped from the call. Why can just no one make a program that just does this? Ah, this was the good one. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you pre-recorded from my house in the Lower East Side. We got Nastasia Lopez in Stanford, Connecticut. We got Matt, uh, not in the booth. He's in some booth. He's hopefully not in his chonies. He promises he's not somewhere in the great state of Rhode Island. And promise, promise, no chonies. Remember, it's a no chony show. Uh, no chony zone. John, spelled Gene, so Gene John from Booker and Dax is is on. He can hear what we're saying now, but cannot talk because he's we can't. He's the somehow... only live listener. <laughs> The one, the one live listener. So f- f- no one cares because they're not listening live anyway. But uh, we we have now spent fifteen minutes trying to get four people. To, whatever, whatever. We'll talk about it, it later. Doesn't matter. The mechanism, matter. the mechanism of recording. You'd think in this day and age we could do it, but no. But we have could a, use improvement. Could use improvement. John, if you have any questions for us, though, uh, hit me up in the chat. <laughs> Remember, uh, for next time, you can chat us stuff live, but you can't talk to us until we figured that out if and when we ever do. Um, today's special guest, though, and I, I pray that we have not lost him. <laughs> ben, are you there? Oh, 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 my, my God. Wait, 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 wait. No, wait. No. Good? Wait. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Hi. Yes, I am here. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I had preemptively muted myself due to child noise. Oh, uh, yeah, I yeah, yeah. All right. I was huh. about to flip oh, the computer oh my God. out a window. Yeah, it was about to be, you know. <laughs> the funny thing is, is I could throw my computer out the window now in the time of COVID, and people would just give it a six-foot-wide berth around it, walk around yeah, it, and it'd still be it. there. Yeah, it'd still be there. No one's... That's the thing. It's like, anyway. So we have as our special guest on the podcast today, <laughs> Ben from bendatable.com. Why don't you, why don't you introduce, in case, in case they don't know, they haven't listened to the past couple of promos we've done, you're um, sponsoring the Cooking Issues right now, and you have um, kind of an online subscription service where, what's the word you like to use? You cu- curate kind of high-end pantry-related items or like could eat right now like a lot of the canned fish kind of stuff or or like kind of cool pantry stuff very high quality stuff send it out to people so that they can kind of take advantage of these maybe harder to get uh interesting products would you say that's accurate that is very accurate said by a man who's been reading uh uh promo (laughs) copy we've sent over uh actually i have to say this i never read any promo copy before okay, i actually well, read it live perfect here's so like I, like if you if you're ever in the studio with us uh what happens is nastasia starts yelling at me she preemptively gets angry with me 
like about 10 minutes before the end of the radio uh, show and then starts yelling at me about how I have to do this thing that I had no idea I had to do, then hands me the copy, then gets mad at me because we will have 10 minutes of argument over the wording of the copy that I've never read before. Then I read it and then it's over. for a week and then... Is it, but is it, that's, Matt, back me up on this. this is how it works. Uh, yeah, Kat Johnson's also often involved, but yeah, that's the basic lay of the land. Yeah, is she on, she's not on, right? We can't, we can't she's get. She's not on, no, no, she's not our secret listener right now. Uh, all right. So but, why yeah, you... that, that's a, that's a great, a great description. Um, we are exactly, we're so a monthly subscription for amazing shelf-stable pantry ingredients um, from things like staples and you know the, the sort of rancho gordo and kichi boy mill type staples to interesting spreads and spices from places around the world and local um and i'm coming to you from new haven connecticut yeah um, new haven. I, I believe you know well i do new haven is the town new haven is the town that once everyone leaves it they're like well not so bad I, like yeah. it's like you know, Nastasia says that I'm the New Haven of uh, bosses. When people have worked for me, they hate it, and then as soon as they leave, they're like, "Oh, Dave wasn't so bad." <laughs> yeah. So Nastasia is just waiting to leave so that she can feel that way. What are you yeah. Doing? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because yeah, sure. partner, you have to but- work with them every friggin' day. Yeah, but like, I, 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 like, it's also the same with partners. It's like, you know, you have partners, partners are terrible, but then you get different partners and you're like, oh, yeah, you know is, what? That is true. That is wasn't true. so bad. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that has actually happened to you. That has happened to you. <laughs> Let's not get into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was like, you know. Uh, yeah, so I'm proud to be the new haven of partners slash, you know, bosses slash friends. Yeah, 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 Dave, he wasn't so bad. The nice thing about New Haven really is kind of – New Haven used to be – so for those of you that don't know, New Haven is kind of midway up the Connecticut shoreline. So you kind of think that the east coast of the United States is kind of a north-south situation, but in the Connecticut area, it's really kind of – it's an east-west situation. Even though you're driving on I-95 north, you're really just traveling east-west. So Nastasia's Heidi Hole in Connecticut is – all the way kind of to the west on the New York side. And New Haven is pretty much spot in the in the middle. Um, and it used to be one of the most beautiful towns. You know, it was known as the as the Elm City. There were elms everywhere lining the streets, beautiful elm trees. And for those of you that don't know what an elm looks like, because there's not that many around anymore, they have this beautiful, American elms anyway, this beautiful kind of vase shape. And in New Haven, we had a beer called Elm City Beer. Everything is Elm City in New Haven because of uh, Elm. They have a lot of beautiful old houses. Um, then what happened is this Dutch elm disease came in, wiped out all, all the elms. There was a lot of um, kind of social blight. There was a when I ninety five and the connectors got put through New Haven, they cut off whole neighborhoods and shafted whole neighborhoods, dropping them into poverty. It's a whole thing, but New Haven is one of these cities that is always rising. It's always rising somehow. I don't understand how it's been, but for the past at least thirty years, it's been rising somehow, and yet here it is. Am I right about this, Ben? Am I, I got New Haven pretty much right? That sounds pretty accurate. Um, yeah. It certainly has risen somewhat. Um, we were here, my wife and I were, were here uh, 15 years ago and then having moved back recently, it is definitely uh, on the, seems on the upswing. Yeah, I mean, for, I just, could, just in that timeline. And the, the scale of New Haven is nice, right? So like you can walk into the middle of the town area. You can live in a house and walk into the middle of the town area. So it's kind of, it's a nice scale. It's a good, it's a good place. It's right on a train line. Uh, the food and bar scene, I was there right before the um, quarantine happened. Uh, my partner at the bar, Don and I, were doing a class at Yale. And, um, and uh, yeah, it's, it seems like, it seems like yeah. it's happening. It seems like it's cool. It's good stuff. It, good it punches stuff. above its weight is, is how I like to describe it. Yeah. You know, when, in the 90s when I was there playing in bands in New Haven, we were one of the few kind of New Haven bands – sorry, uh, Yale bands that also played with New Haven bands. Uh, there was a couple, a couple of bands like that when we were there. And everyone was like, yeah, New Haven, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. Like, you know, the whole Southern Connecticut – like the, the whole music scene is going to – no, it never happened. The Southern Connecticut music scene never – we were never, you know – we're going to be the new Athens, Georgia. No, no, 
That's not what happened. Anyway. That's <laughs> um, not what happened. Yeah. Anyways. All right. So uh, so what do you want to talk about, Ben? What are you, you're here. Do you have anything to say? you want to answer some questions? Do you want me to read some questions? You can answer them. <laughs> um, if, if you want. I, uh, you know, don't go quite into the uh, – have, haven't gotten into nitro muddling just yet, but – um, Do you have a supply of liquid nitrogen? I... That's something you can't send to people's houses, liquid nitrogen. No, it is not. Um, no, I, t- I tend to go a bit more, I guess, classic on the cocktails, but would, would love to get into XCon and, and try some of, the, some of these out when, they're, uh, when you're back open. Yeah, I would love, for, I would love to be back open. We're back with 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 uh, Ben Simon from Ben to Table. Now you go by you go by Ben just professionally, or do you go by Benjamin in the real life, or what do you do? I, I go by Ben professionally and in the real life. Oh, nice. You know how some people when they have like a when they have like a, a name that's part of their company, they'll use a slightly different version in the real life to try to keep their stuff separate. And I've never understood that. That seems like a garbage separation to me. Yeah, like, I agree. It's also like a big part of this is you kind of got to buy into me at like my tastes, and if you don't, you know, if, if 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 you don't see me as a as a real person who cooks and who you respect, uh, you know, not really going to be the value proposition for you. So right. try try to go as real as possible. Nice. So now we were going back to kind of what you what you so you you find these things. So we, I cooked a bunch of this stuff that uh, that you, you sent over, and some some of the stuff I had already known, uh, some of it I, I didn't. But um, so so where are you finding all this stuff? You just like going down to, to Charleston and hanging out with the 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 Geechee Boy Mills people, or like what, what? How does this work? Actually, I had a trip uh, planned that I had to cancel because of the COVID, unfortunately. But. Um so some of the stuff are things where, so I moved to New Haven two years ago from San Francisco. And so part of the stuff is things that I used to be able to access quite easily. And then when I got here, sort of had a like, oh, I, I can't get this anymore without really searching it out. And I know a lot of people are in a similar situation. So part of it was thinking, oh, there's there's stuff that like Rancho Gordo beans that I used to be able to just walk to my corner fancy bodega and pick up that I would love to be able to help other people have easier access to. And then sort of expanding from there to things like Geechee Boy, which I actually um, sort of tried out as I was thinking about this concept. Um, I had initially been thinking Anson Mills, but they're sort of less well set up for retail, essentially. Um, And then other things were my sort of other other life and, and career has been working on advocacy campaigns around the world. And so I've spent a lot of time in a lot of different places. And so thinking about amazing things I've had there that I could source either from a, you know, a Spain, a Peru, a Greece, or where I could find interesting domestic producers and help them to find more customers and really help to try and find a way to help smaller producers who are working generally more sustainably, generally producing more delicious food to, to get to more people. Yeah. yeah. Mm, cool. Uh, by the way, I've been cooking most of this stuff in my, in my rice cooker. It has come to my attention that not everyone has a rice cooker. And I think that that's fine because not everyone needs to have all these crazy things. But I think rice cooker is one of the things that people don't necessarily know that they really want if they don't have one. I don't have, bear in mind, I don't have an Instapot. A lot of people have Instapots. I do not have an Instapot. I own a pressure cooker and a rice cooker. Is, is an Instapot any good as a, as a rice cooker? Personally, I don't use it for rice, but I love it for the grits, actually, because you don't have to, you just put it in and then it's done basically and you start you don't have to do the whole stirring during and it comes out pretty much perfectly yeah but i do that in my rice cooker i do that in my zojirushi induction rice cooker if you're ever going to get like if you're ever going to get married or if you're just rich or if you have someone who's rich who's going to give you like a really nice gift like uh Ask for the top of the line Zojirushi rice cooker. I know that in other countries there are brands that are even more high flying, but in the United States, 
the Zoji Rushi, uh, like uh, neuro fuzzy logic in induction rice cookers are ridiculous. They are ridiculous. They never burn anything ever. I once kept rice hot for uh, a week and a half in one to see whether the taste would change in a way that I thought was interesting. Spoiler, it didn't. Um, but like it didn't burn. It didn't get messed up. I mean, those rice cookers, the Zojiruji rice cookers, are crazy. So I do my beans in the rice cooker, and I do my uh, I do grits in the rice cooker. Milk, no stirring, no breaking, no scorching, which is fantastic, right? Um, anyway, so I love it. But again, I don't have a lot of experience or any experience with the Instapot, so I don't know whether or not you know an Instapot is a good substitute for the Neuro Fuzzy Logic Zojiruji in- induction rice cooker. But who knows? Who knows? I mean, it certainly probably doesn't have the programming that the Zojirushi does for rice. So, like, if you care about doing, like, brown rice, semi-brown rice, sushi rice, uh, you know, kanji, and getting them on the nose every time, I'm sure the Zojirushi is going to be better than the Instapot for that. But I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, the, the Instant Pot settings are mostly kind of nonsense, I think. Like, I just use set the minutes based on how long it should take as opposed to, you know, using the soup setting or whatever, which is meaningless. Yeah. I also use the, I, I sometimes even use my rice cooker for reheating uh, soups and stews and stuff like that. You just punch it on the reheat. I mean, that thing is ridiculous. I would say that, you know, I've had mine for, oh, I don't know, uh, 17 years, 16 years, and it's still going strong. Every once in a while, it'll die on me. I'll unplug it. And I'll like put it on an altar for like four or five days, and then I'll plug it back in again, and it'll work again. Like the 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 rice gods have smiled on me with my rice cooker. I remember when Booker was uh, very young. So Booker was eighteen now. When he was very young, he had a bunch of sensory issues about um, music, specifically music coming on, and so he wouldn't allow. Because it's a Japanese piece of kitchen equipment, it's got some goofy tune that it plays when it's done making the rice. And Booker could not tolerate. He like in other words, he would have anxiety about me making rice in anticipation of the music going off at the end of the Zoshi Rushi. So I had to the I've voided any sort of warranty. It was already past warranty at that point anyway, but I ripped it apart and ripped the speaker out of it. So I have silent Zoji Rushi. Which, I don't know, is that better or worse? Do you guys like the tunes that these things play? No, that sounds great. Uh, like, the laundry machines that make this, the happy jingle at the end, I don't I don't want to hear that. I'd much yeah. rather the silent version. That sounds like an improvement. I mean, like, if you, I mean, as a manufacturer of equipment, I mean, Nastasi and I can, like, vouch for this, but, like, we could, anyone could just make a silent mode for this stuff, and it would cost literally an extra five cents. Literally yeah. an extra five cents. So for you, we're talking at like a retail, maybe it's an extra 75 cents. Do you know what I'm saying? For yeah. me, it's like five cents. And in retail, we're talking 75 cents. And then you could just be like, you know what? No, I don't need to hear that. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, I think you guys should make a version of the Sears All that plays a jingle every time you boot it up or turn it off. Why and then not? charge extra for... Yeah, charge extra for that. I think it'd be easier with the centrifuge. <laughs> oh, my God. So like the... Um, we, I remember we had a bunch of people when we were first making Searsalls, and they were like, can you, can you, like, can you, like, make them different colors? Can you, like, put, like, rate, can you put racing stripes on them? Can you, and we're like, uh, no, you idiot. <laughs> it gets super freaking hot. It's glowing red. How am I supposed to paint it? You know, you know what I mean? It's like people just have a fundamental lack of understanding about how this is working. Right, Nastasia? I was one person, and he was an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but the good news is he was a person with power. So, like, the, the, the great thing about life is is it only takes one person in power to make you try to, you know, to spend a lot of time, time seeing whether or not you can add color. Look, well, look, maybe we could enamel it. Maybe I could, like, pull, like, an enamel. I'm like, no, you can't. What? No, no. The enamel will shatter, and then there'll be little pieces of glass in your food. Crazy. Missed Crazy. opportunity because you guys could have been like a lecrosay. I could have had my yellow searsol, my you know lime green searsol. I think that exact sentence. <laughs> <laughs> See, I knew I was capable of thinking like a total idiot. Uh, oh I have it God. in me. Now, if we ever make a torch, those we could make different colors. Those we could put some racing stripes on. 
Do you know what's a, like an under uh, an, uh, like an undeveloped market? So Jeremiah Bullfrog from not Jeremiah Stone here, but Chef Jeremiah Bullfrog. I never even learned his real last name because he just went by Jeremiah Bullfrog in Miami. Friend of ours from way back, from back in the French culinary days. He had someone uh, take a bunch of stainless steel like EC whippers and then do hand art over the EC whippers and then clear coat over that. Now that's cool. Customized EC whippers, those are pretty sick. You know what I'm saying? Like that's something you could do because who lights their EC on fire? Although Nastasia and I did once. Nastasia, remember when I had to make nachos for someone at home uh, at their desk? I wasn't with you for that. Why? Where were you? I don't know. Anyway, so like the idea was we're going to someone's uh, desk at Complex Magazine at First We Feast, and they were like, you're going to make nachos uh, at the desk. And I'm like, well, what level of crazy do you want? And um, they were like, well, crazy. I'm like, okay, then I'm going to walk up to their desk. I'm going to start with dried beans, and I'm going to make beans for the nachos at their desk while they're sitting there. And I... This is totally not cool, but I put dry beans into an EC whipper with excess water and salt and garlic. And then I put, I sealed it and I put a torch on the side of the EC whipper so that I could build the pressure up to like 45, 50 PSI with heat so that I could cook the beans in like, you know, in a minute. And so like I cooked from dry beans in a minute to make the beans for the nachos and and I had liquid nitrogen for other stuff around me. And I was I totally invaded their desk. And the looks of death and murder from the from the folks like on either side desk of me, I've never seen that much kind of wishing I was dead from someone outside my family. You know what I mean? It was like it was crazy. But the beans were good. But it's completely unsafe to put fire onto an EC and you shouldn't do it. Um anyway, I don't even know how we got onto that. Oh, I know how we got onto that. We're talking about uh, rice cookers and grits. So what I did with your grits was uh, I did – do you do your grits with milk or not with milk? I, know, I usually add a little bit of milk at the end. But you're, you're a, a water for most of the time guy? Yeah, so, so I, w- I did them a few times. I was doing them sort of fully loaded and then, d- and then tried it just with nothing but water and salt and found that it actually like brought out more of the kind of corn – like the corniness to it that I was kind of losing a little bit with everything else. So first thing I'll say, before Dax, my second son was born, we were trying to come up with, you know how you give nicknames to, well, maybe you don't. Like uh, often you'll give nicknames to the babies before they're born that aren't their real names that you can use as kind of slang for before they're born. His was corny corn. Yeah. Nice. Corny corn. (laughs) Um, But the, uh, I did milk when I did it. I only cooked the, the grits once, but I did shrimp and grits in the rice cookers. Now, the thing with shrimp and grits is shrimp and grits is delicious but super heavy. So I tried to lighten it up a little bit. I did uh, I did milk but not – I don't think a lot of cream. I used some very nice uh, shrimp, bacon, and just a little bit of cheese folding it in. Tried to keep the, the corn and the grit level high and the soupiness and the kind of lead in your stomach down to a minimum. Because I feel shrimp and grits is something that is everyone finds delicious but it's just – like a brick it's just so heavy that if it's going to be the primary thing that you eat like i can't do it traditionally it's just too much what do you think ben is it's too much right i would agree yeah i love it as an app not yeah. so, like gotta be lighter for the man right because it in the it, like traditionally it's just oh my god like i'm not and i don't i'm not a general believer by the way that you know like i'm not one of those guys who's like oh what i ate was so heavy oh i don't feel good now that's not me you know what I mean? But like if I would like eat the amount of shrimp and grits that I would just naturally eat if you put it in front of me, at the end I'll be like, oh my god, oh my god, shrimp and grits. But a lighter shrimp and grits with those um, – what do they call Jimmy? Uh, the word just went out of my head. Jimmy Red Grits. Yeah, those grits are ridiculously good. Ridiculously good. Anyway, uh, let me get to some questions. Uh, we had Jonathan from New Jersey write in to us uh, saying – and this is just basically – uh, you know, I put it out there, uh, I think, on the show last week and also just in general. Uh, you know, we, we want to hear how you guys are doing during the, during the COVID. And uh, he writes in, big fan of the show. Thanks for continuing to produce content during the crisis. Well, we're trying, Jonathan. I mean, we're trying. <laughs> you know, it's like the, we're now on Zoom, which uh, – we, so we started with Zencaster. 
today. Went to Ringer. Yes. And now, now we're on Zoom, which will cut us. Like, Nastasia, you should use Zoom all the time because it cuts you off hard a- after an hour. I do, and conversations I don't want to have. It's, oh, uh, <laughs> nice. nice. This is a good thing to remember. We will run up against that wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Nastasia's like, super. Let's run against that wall <laughs> quick. Uh, at the end of last week's show, you asked people to write in what they were doing during lockdown. As a grocery store worker, our experience is so different from many Americans uh, that I thought you'd like to know. I see people posting on social media about how they're bored, stir-crazy, etc., but we're still getting up and going to work every day. I'm a chef de partie for a Whole Foods at the Jersey Shore, and normally my job involves coordinating food production and food safety for our salad bar, hot bar, hot bar and other uh, prepared food venues. All of these have been shut down, and although the store is busy, our department has seen a massive revenue drop. Um, we have commitments to our vendors who are continuing to deliver product that we are, um, uh, that we are uh, pre-ordered months in advance, but we now have no outlet for. I have tasked my cooks with preparing everything for us to donate to food banks, as well as preparing box lunches that we are donating to our area, uh, hospital staff, police, and EMS. We are also providing family meal twice a day to our staff as an appreciation for their hard work, but also to reduce unnecessary contact with the public from standing online to purchase food during their breaks, which is a huge problem, by the way. For any of you like who are not in a city, it's like even places that are social distancing outside of their stores, it becomes kind of a free-for-all inside. It's kind of nuts. Have you guys noticed that? Well, you're not in the cities. Who's yeah, John, have no. you noticed that? <laughs> yeah, I've noticed it. When I was at a supermarket the other week, the manager was coming by as I was paying. He wanted to shut down the store because there were so many people in there. Yeah, but it's like, it's like I was in a store where like everyone was on their six-foot marker outside the store, face mask and six-foot marker. And then but you get in, and the way that they have it working, the lines are unbelievably long because those things have to be spaced out. So those things go into the shopping areas, and then they have fewer people on that are doing restock, so stocking stuff is in the aisles. So there's no way to make it through one of these stores without getting real bumped into somebody. You know what I mean? Uh, it's pretty It's pretty hardcore. Anyway, um, where was I? Uh... Twice a day uh, during their breaks. Okay. We've also implemented strict crowd control measures and, a pre- and pre-shift temperature checks for our employees. So that's like a, probably a forehead temperature check, which is my worst nightmare when I used to fly to Hong Kong and China is that I would get quarantined. Uh, did, did we tell a story about how you developed a fever on the airplane and I shoved Tylenol down your throat? Like months. It wasn't COVID, people. Don't give me this. But remember that, Stas? Yeah, you were so angry. <laughs> well... You know, like I tell you that my biggest fear in life is flying to another country and and like getting sick and especially in a country where back in the day they were already testing for fevers and quarantining people at the border that you would like fly, not tell me that you have a fever till you're on the plane and then get on the plane. And so like, you know, I, Nastasia had like a, a blood Tylenol content of like a hundred percent. It was, it was like, <laughs> I, it's not true. I didn't overdose her on Tylenol. I did not endanger her liver. Anyway, uh, we've also implemented strict crowd control measures and pre-shift temperature checks for our employees. As a member of leadership, I've been manning the temperature station at the employee entrance as well as working the front door to limit both the total number of guests in the building as well as the density of shoppers in a given department, which is important. I think that's where a lot of places are falling uh, flat is, is in that regard. Uh, that's just a little bit of what's going on that people may not be aware of. Thanks again for continuing to put out episodes. I had the opportunity to visit XCon on my birthday in January. Oh, January. Remember back in January when we used to have bars and restaurants? Um, <laughs> oh, January. When we weren't oh. going outside because it was just a little cold? Oh, January. <laughs> oh, brother. We're like, oh, yeah, it's a little nippy. Oh, my you know what I mean? Now we're like, oh, my God. Well, what I wouldn't do for February revenue. You know what I mean? What I wouldn't give for some like, you know, normally, like we're hoping, everyone's hoping that we can reopen in the summer. Let's not forget restaurant people that like 99% of uh, like of us hated the summer in New York. So some of you like, like on the Jersey Shore, maybe summer's great. If you live in the Hamptons, you're making all your money in the summer. But for those of you that live in New York City and have, you know, work in the industry here in New York City, like we're all like, oh my God, we're not making any money during, because everybody leaves the city during the summer, right, Nastasia? Yeah. 
but now we're like, now we're like, oh my God, we could reopen in the summer. I mean, I've never had so many people wish they could open in the summer. Like we opened uh, existing conditions in the summer when we f- opened the first time and we were all bent that we were opening during the summertime <laughs> because it's such a crappy time to open. And now we're praying, praying, you know, for a, for a summertime opening. Oh, what a little COVID will do for you. What do you guys think the odds are that we reopen we meaning everyone reopen in let's say June, July, and then have to close again in September. I don't even want to respond to that. (laughs) I mean, I mean, I don't know. I don't even, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. I mean, I I, like what seems, so actually I've got a a neighbor who's an epidemiologist who's been doing a bunch of the research on this stuff. And one of the, it sounds to me a little bit like what we're headed for is these sort of partial reopenings and then partial closings where like, it's not that everything will have to shut down in September necessarily, but like there will be places where there's flare ups and those places will have to shut down. And the challenge will be how do we predict where those are and how do we account for that and, like, figure out how to adapt to that. Right, but also the thing is in, in, in our business, right, it's like there's a couple of things, right? The business needs to make money because rent, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the staff needs to make money because they're, they're people and we need to take care of the staff. Now, what the hell? You know what I mean? Like, like there's a certain – like every restaurant, every bar – Right. Every like, well, food carts are one person can be one person operation. So that's a little bit different can be. But like every business that was built, you know, on a normal business model is designed to operate at a certain scale and does not operate efficiently at a different scale. So you pay the rent that you're going to pay based on the number of people that are going to be going through your establishment, the people you can put through your establishment. The landlords know this, which is why the rents in places where more people go are more expensive, which is why you pay more for a bigger space that you can get more in or that you have, I mean, like, because they know that this is built into the models, right? It takes a certain staff to staff a certain size place, right? Regardless of whether they're spread out. If I'm putting... If, if, if I'm suddenly putting 50 people into two rooms, those two rooms are designed for 100 people, right? I still need to have extra staff because like a person who's in the front room, even though they could service all the people and do a good job of service, they no longer have a line of sight to all of their guests. And without a line of sight, it's hard to do good service, right? So it's, it's like the scales, everyone's designed for a certain scale and then we have to kind of turn these taps off and on. And then what? People are supposed to go on their insurance and then back on Cobra and then back on their insurance and back off Cobra as we as we hire and refire and hire and refire. I mean, how is this going to work? Do you know what I mean? Like, I have no idea. This is this is what keeps me up. You know what I mean? I definitely understand so. why it keeps you up. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just banana llamas. Um, anyway. Uh, also, Capri Sun, friend of the show, I thought he was mad at me because he bought a, a coffee grinder. And then, I, you know, I'm, he should know. He's like, do you want to buy the other coffee grinder? But I was like, it got confused. I'm very bad at communication. But anyway, I was supposed to, in our Instagram Live that Nastasi and I did, show off my clam broth house. For those of you that have never seen the clam broth house sign, in uh, in you know, across the river in New Jersey, there used to be a place called the Clam Broth House, and they had a big sign and with a with a you know a neon sign with a hand, and that hand was pointing down in a kind of D's nuts uh, symbol, and it says Clam Broth House, and it's like and so like you know Jack Shrem from Existing Conditions, I walk around and be like get your Clam Broth right here, right here, right here, and we point down with the you know with the Clam Broth House sign. So anyway. He made us uh, the Cooking Issues Clam Broth House shirt, and I was supposed to show it on Instagram, but I always wear a button-up over my shirt, so I forgot to unbutton my shirt and show it, so I'm apologizing to Capri Sun for that. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, anyway. And John, did, he did you see the picture of you wearing it, though. He did see it? All right. All right. Yes. Uh, Kieran wrote in and said, originally Kieran wrote in asking about the like uses of and nutrition of Okara. Okara is the spent pulp uh, that you have when you're making uh, soy products, soy milk, tofu, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, 
wrote back in again and said, do you have a reputable source to look up a nutrition information, i.e. the nutritional uh, label info, not health advice? I'm trying to narrow down the root cause of some issues I've been having, so having a re resource like that would be very helpful since there's so much misinformation about out there. Now, first of all, Karen, I'll say this. I do not trust the labels on the back of – the only source of in general that I have is the label that's on the back of products. And luckily – most uh, processed manufacturers' goods, you can now find Google, um, Google Docs of the nutritional information on the back. And in general, that's what I use for carbohydrate loads, ingredients, and things like that because they, they, they have to be listed there. That's just the law. I don't trust them in terms of levels because no one ever takes a piece of food – you know, puts it into a bomb calorimeter, burns it, and tries to figure out, not even that that would be the way, I don't even know how they do it, but no one does that. What they do is, is they, they take the list of um, nutritional information that they get off of their raw ingredients that are published by uh, the federal government, and then extrapolate the, um, extrapolate the amount of those, uh, you know, things that are in, in yours. And so I've seen many, many math errors i've seen many out now just you know where the numbers don't match up so i don't know i don't have a good source what about any of you guys have a good source for this stuff no nope. yeah i have a general lack lack of trust although i do enjoy serving size bingo so like uh i like whenever whenever i buy a new product I spin it around. I'm like, how many servings is this? You know what I mean? So I bought a, a half-gallon jug of um, Taiwanese fermented chili, and I'm like, hey, folks, what's a serving size? And for these guys, a serving size of their of their fermented chili uh, was two ounces, 60 milliliters, which is a preposterous amount of this stuff, you know, whereas like, you know, other people were like, you know, you'll look at the serving size on, on something else and it's like tiny and they're like 395 servings. And you're like, it, so it's like, I love playing serving size bingo. It's my absolute favorite, my absolute favorite, uh, label game to play. Um, I also, <laughs> a lot of times when you guys ask me questions on the air, uh, like how, how do you do X, Y, or Z? Um, I look at the ingredient labels of, um, people who do it, you know, on a larger scale and it's pretty, it's fairly easy if you have a little bit of knowledge of how individual ingredients work, you know, like if you know what xanthan does, if you know what the different polysorbates are for, if you know what, um, you know, if you know some basic, uh, ingredient if you have a basic ingredient kind of what's the word literacy, you can figure out a lot of times what people are doing. The exception, and we'll get to something kind of similar to this, uh, the exception you get to that is when people are using very tweaked out functional ingredients that sometimes are listed or sometimes aren't, but that can radically affect like what's going on. So for instance, Oatly, who makes the oat milk that everyone goes gaga for. I've never tried it. Any of you guys tried this Oatly stuff? I no. Drink in my coffee. Remember, I gave up milk. Yes. So you tried oatly. I use oatly. Is it good? It's the best non-milk milk. Fact, especially it, for for coffee. Yep. And and you're and it it lasts a long time, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So the thing about uh, oatly is is that oatly is doing something to the oat milk with enzymes, right? That and we talked about this on the air a, a while ago. That is doing a they're they're functionally altering the base product using an ingredient that is proprietary to them. And so for that kind of stuff, it's kind of hard to back. It's kind of hard to, to kind of back figure what they're doing, but most of the time people aren't doing that. That's the rare, that's the rare thing. So uh, Ashmit wrote in, uh, "Hey Nastasia and the Cooking Issues gang, my question is about whey protein shakes. Whey protein shakes. Uh, I've never had a whey protein shake. You guys, any of you guys ever had a whey protein shake? Nope. No. No. Uh, the brand that I buy is a concentrate with added digestive enzymes. However, there's no mention of the amount of them. 
what I do is that I make my drink and let it sit for 20 to 30 minutes. And my concern is that uh, if I immediately drink the shake, the enzymes might get denatured from all the stomach acid and other crap. Therefore, waiting some time could partially, in quotes, digest the proteins in the shake with the help of the enzymes. Is this a legitimate concern? Does this waiting really help? Or is it a redundant step? Thanks so much, big fan. Sorry for the long question. So, all right, long, like, long story there's I had, there's a lot to unpack here, all right? So um, most things that people add to products I consider to be scams. I'm just saying that straight up. Most things that people add that aren't to make something taste better, I think are scams, most. Now, uh, there is the Herbalife, which is well-known. I mean, say what you like, but they have been involved in some scammy things, right? They sell one of the enzyme things that is added to whey protein powders. And when you look online for website for sorry for peer-reviewed papers about doping enzymes into protein shakes and there are a couple, guess who they were sponsored by? The Herbalife Corporation, right? So it's like you you, you kind of have to be careful there. Now, I the, the studies when they when they were looking to see whether or not you got a bigger spike of amino acids uh I think they were checking one study I read. I think they were checking uh, blood level free amino acids, although I don't really even know what that means. And then uh, they were also checking um, excretion of nitrogen compounds in urine um, versus, you know, control versus not. And they were doping at the time of consumption. So uh, they were not waiting. They were making the shake, adding the enzyme, and consuming it. Now, whether so. Presumably, it takes X amount of time, and I've said this for, this was one of my old uh, diet things that I used to say, and people will always say I'm crazy, but I will reiterate it, even though this is not based in science, this is just based in logic. All right, I'm going to pose you guys a logical question. Ready? Yes. Ready. Okay, so if you, uh, what, what, what do they always say? How many calories is a pound? Something like, what is it? Does any of you guys remember? 2,000, whatever it is? No. So, so if you eat a teaspoon of oil, right, odds are your body can absorb that teaspoon of oil, right? Because your body can absorb that amount of oil in that amount of time, right? Now, uh, so let's say, let's say that you have the amount of oil that it would take to get your daily allowance of calories, right? And you consume that. Great. Now, if I picked up a gallon of oil and I drank that gallon of oil all at once, do you think that my body would convert all of that oil into usable food calories, or do you think that I would have an oil slick in my toilet? Uh, you, would, you would definitely not process it in the calories. Yes. It would go right through you. It would go right through you, and you'd have a terrible cleanup job, right? There is yes. a limit. There is a limit to how much your body can absorb at any one time of any one thing. Now, I don't know what that is, right? But, you know, this was, you know, years ago when I was younger. This was my, I don't want to get into my, like, when I was younger, quack theories. But it is definitely true that there is, and I don't know what it is, but there is some maximum rate of absorption. And so what people have uh, said who believe in these digestive enzymes that you're adding to things is that when you are eating a, pro drinking a protein shake specifically to jack yourself with protein because you're working out, that your body cannot absorb whole protein quickly enough, i.e. you can't break it down into peptides and polypeptides fast enough that are absorbable into your system. And therefore, if you add enzymes to it to break it down, that you increase the amount you can absorb in the relatively short transit time that that protein shake has in your gut. This may be the case. It may be true. Then you have to ask yourself, do I actually need all that extra protein in my system? That is a separate question. Uh, but adding it to break down early, it seems like if it works by swallowing it, it will work even better, in quotes, doing it beforehand. But be aware that as you break protein down, you can develop uh, bitter tasting things, bitter tasting polypeptides, especially because some of them use um, things like uh, papain, which is the um, papaya-based uh, protease enzyme. And that I know that can make bitter stuff because I've tested it.
This episode is brought to you by Ben to Table, a monthly food subscription service for avid home cooks focused on delicious and sustainable pantry items. So I'm opening the box. It's Spanish delicacies. Looks good. I'll open it up. We have some Matisse España garlic spread. By the way, these are, these are the papara peppers. I don't, what are they in? Are they in vinegar? What are they in? I think they're in vinegar. Yeah. But this is uh, pimenton. So this is going to be probably smoked pimenton powder. Let's open her up. And, and we have harissa. Oh, yeah, it's nice. The smoked, uh, the smoked, yeah. You like smoked pepper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds good. Start your monthly subscription at bentotable.com. That's B-E-N-T-O-T-A-B-L-E.com. Use the discount code HRN to get $20 off a new subscription, and Ben to Table will donate $10 to support cooking issues and all of HRN's programming. Just as we're, as we're getting into close, one of the things that I wanted to add is when I started this, part of the thing was getting restaurant quality ingredients to people, and a lot of the suppliers I work with are, tend to supply restaurants. And so since COVID, one of the things that I've been thinking about more, and partly because folks are telling me, is that uh, in addition to the restaurant industry and sort of another part of the restaurant industry and restaurant workers story is the restaurant suppliers, many of whom are really hurting. Um, so a, a couple of the folks, so uh, Piment de Ville, or Boonville Barn Collective, they've got, they make this amazing Espelette pepper that's in my April box, for instance, and something like 85% of their orders dried up overnight because of that was restaurants. Geechee Boy Mill does a ton of work with restaurants. Diaspora Company does a bunch of work with restaurants. So I think it's a really interesting, um, just as a, something for folks to think about as well, is how to get ingredients outside of the grocery store supply chains, which obviously I'm here because that's part of what I'm doing, but. I think there's also probably other ways that you can look at local suppliers in addition to, of course, coming to bench table. Right. Well, you know, the, it's it's interesting. A lot of people, especially kind of like high, higher quality, uh, higher quality suppliers who don't have an infinite amount of product, you know, as you know, Nastasia and I can vouch for this. It's hard to distribute into um, either big box or grocery stores. It's very hard to do that. And to main, you know, because either you don't have the amount of product or you don't have the scale, uh, things get sent way out. It's hard to maintain kind of freshness and it just takes, it takes a lot of resources to have a product that you could push out nationwide into grocery stores. And so a lot of people don't do it. And a lot of small places would rather work farmer's markets or sell directly to restaurants because a restaurant typically is going to order a lot more than uh, an individual human being is. And they're relatively reliable because they know they're going to sell this dish. They get this ingredient in. They know they're going to carry it. They can develop a relationship. There's fewer people to have to deal with than if you have to deal with individual customers mediated through a grocery store, mediated through a distributor, right? So uh, I think it's an incredibly valid point is that a lot of these people, their relationships, they're, they're really their only lifetime to be able to continue to make these things has been temporarily cut off so it's a it's a good thing to support right now i think yeah thank you yeah no agreed um let me rip these two questions real quick peter power writes in uh hi dave uh matt nastasia hope you guys are safe and finding a way to cope with the various ramifications of the crisis i'm working in the danish craft beer scene as a distributor so i'm also painfully aware of how devastating this is to the industry been listening to you guys since the third episode damn you didn't go back and listen to the first two what the hell or do you mean listening live wouldn't that be crazy to listen to all eight billion episodes just not the first two that would be the craziest (laughs) thing ever i kind of like that don't go back and listen to those first two um This is my first time writing in. If you're still keeping track of demographics, I'm 32 years old, male from Denmark and living with my girlfriend. So where is that on the tracks, Daz? Uh, Yeah, same. Right down the center? Down the center. Right down the center. All right. My question is, I've owned a couple different venting pressure cookers over the last 10 years. And I'm now, by the way, I don't like pressure cookers that use venting as the mechanism of regulating pressure. So a lot of pressure cookers, when you like literally the way they regulate pressure is to just shoot out stuff. I've run some tests. You can go back on the cooking issues blog, which still exists. John is working on restarting it as a live thing, but you can go look at the tests, believe them, don't believe them, whatever. But I like Kuhn Recon. Anyway, 
there's other good ones, but that's just the one I use at home. Um, I've owned a couple different venting pressure cookers over the last 10 years and have now finally decided to go all in and buy the, the big one, the Kuhn Recon. However, after doing some research, I discovered that their pressure cookers, as well as all other pressure cookers sold in the European Union, only come up to about 0.8 bar, which is about 12 PSI. And naturally, I would like to pull the full one bar or 15 PSI of pressure, which is what you know they're quoted at here and what most of... Most of the ones that I do, except the electric ones, go to 15 PSI. And I don't know why a lot of the electric ones don't go. It's ridiculous. They should just go to the 15 PSI. I run extensive tests on several different ingredients at different pressures. And 15 PSI to get the extra brownness, the extra kind of meatiness, brownness, um, is a better pressure to run at than 12. Anyway, uh, so I wrote Kuhn Recon to see if I could buy a replacement spring from the American market to achieve a higher pressure. And this is the answer I got. First of all, I appreciate the, the writing in. That's good. Uh, cooking level one, well, they give, the, they give their, their general listing here. Cooking level one is 0.4 bar uh, and cooking level two is 0.8 bar uh, and is achieved when both red lines on the pressure indicator stem are visible. But here's the important part that Kuhn Recon gave you that you can hone in on. To maintain the desired cooking level, the amount of heat to the pressure cooker needs to be reduced. A hissing sound accompanied by the escape of steam means that the maximum operating pressure, now hear this, the maximum operating pressure of 1.2 to 1.8 bar has been reached. Then you should reduce the heat or remove the pressure cooker uh, until the second red line is just visible. What they're telling you, what they're telling you is, Peter, that you can get the pressure you want. You just have to jack it over that second line. Just don't jack it more than one point, one point really does about 1.5 bar. But just don't jack it so high that it starts to hiss and vent. But there's no reason you can't push it over that second red line. And it's always, it's repeatable. So as long as you push it the exact same amount over that red line all the time, you'll always get the result you want. And I repeatedly here in the U.S. do that. I jack it over that red line, just not so much that it starts hissing. I hope that helps. Um, Serena wrote in, uh, backing up Nastasia, but then also not throwing me under the bus. For the record, I agree with you with regards to the mustard debate. So for those of you that don't know, last week we had a debate on whether or not John and I should manufacture this uh, manufacture mustard in the style of this mustard that we love that's from Ghent because, you know, absent, you know, my Learjet and my monocle uh, polishing facility, I don't have the ability to go to Ghent regularly and purchase this mustard. It has a shelf life and whatever. And so like Nastasia was horrified that I would try to even make something in the style of what, you know, these people made. Uh, I think John is excited to at least learn how mustard is made with me, but whatever. Anyway, that was the mustard debate. Was, is this accurate, people? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, for the record, I agree with uh, Nastasia with regards to the mustard debate. It is very American to assume that you can just make, in quotes, a product that people have been making for decades and that have an embedded heritage. I think Dave usually, here's where she doesn't throw me under the bus, I think Dave usually has the healthy approach of trying not to do the exact same thing, exactly, but to learn the technique and try to honor the tradition in that way. Thank you, Serena. Backing Nastasi up without throwing me under the bus. If more people could try to see both sides of a, 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 of a debate, unlike some of these debates that are going on on Twitter. Do you think Twitter's gotten more nasty recently just because people can't have real human interactions so they just become nastier on Twitter? Or is it just I'm paying attention to it more because I'm locked in the house? It, the latter. Okay. It's always been like that. It's just functionally useless, right? I mean, like, like people ask me questions on Twitter and then I and then I answer them. But like when I go and look at the debates people are having on Twitter, it's just a freaking nightmare. It's just I don't understand it. Uh, oh, Serena added, I don't remember which podcast talk about this, but a similar idea someone had was doing American uh, Hamon Ibirico, and I'm making air quotes around that, is very similar and somewhat controversial. It's from America's Test Kitchen podcast uh, done by the uh, White Oak Pastures People's Pork. Listen, I am, you should not make – I do not believe that you should try to make and sell anything as somebody else's product. However – on ham specifically, Americans were doing nut-fed ham. Not the same, not the same as like a, a jamon iberico, bayota-fed jamon iberico, but we had our own extremely high-end hams. And for years, for years, since the early 2000s, I have been saying that we need to kind of 
focus on what makes an American ham great instead of trying to recreate somebody else's ham. I mean, I totally agree with that, but I don't, whatever. I'm not going to get back into the mustard debate. Do we have time for classics in the field or do we not have time for classics in the field? Uh, not have time for classics in the field today. Oh my God, I had such a good classics in the field. Save I was going to talk about... Week. I was going to talk about the book of edible nuts. These nuts. <laughs> next. Well, that is a Are great, you familiar? I, Listen. I, everybody wants to hear you tease these nuts, and we'll do the nuts next week. Frederick Rose, Rosengarten Jr., who I'm going to talk about, just, you know what I can do? Matt, can I, can I give you an image that you can put up beforehand, my favorite image of a human brain in cross-section versus a walnut in cross-section? Uh, yeah, yeah. Next week, babe. That's what I'm saying. I'm going to give it to him for next week. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, let me ask another question. People can write in. Let me know what's going on. So, like, I can do... So, like, last week, I did two classics in the field to make up for the fact that I don't think we had one the week before. One was one that I didn't think anyone would ever read, but had kind of important kind of cultural ramifications for how we look at kind of food and food politics. And the other one was one I thought that people might enjoy. Is that something people like or just do the ones that people enjoy? Or because it like, like versus my man, the book of edible nuts with Frederick Rosengarten uh, Jr. would be my boy Siegfried Gideon's Mechanization Takes Command, which was important, but I don't think anyone's going to read it. What do you, what do you, what do you think? What do you think? I, I would dole them out one a week if it was me, but you know, you do what you want. But in other words, like one that people would like versus one. Pe- I don't know. Anyway, you guys think about it. You get back to me. Ben, Ben to table. How do people? How do people order this? What do people normally order? By the way, first of all, have you seen a spike in people ordering now that everyone's at home? So what I've what I've really seen is a shift where it used to be that delicacies was the most popular order, and now people have really been tending toward the essential subscription. And the difference is the the delicacies is what I sent Nastasia, which is the like you know, spreads and spices and stuff. And the essentials is the grits and grains and pastas. Um, and, but yeah, there, there has been an uptick in interest um, and very much hoping, you know, uh, shelf stable pantry items have become much more culturally relevant. I'd say in the last couple months than they, than they ever, than they ever were before. Um, right, listen, this is true. These are shelf stable, but also what you need to do is use them. Don't stockpile these things, use them. Because Ben's choosing stuff that, I swear to God, this stuff, I know that he's sponsoring the show and all, but this stuff is really delicious, should be consumed uh, somewhat, you know, in a timely fashion. Especially, like, those grits, like, they, they, they stone mill them in small batches, send them out to you, and they really, you shouldn't leave them for months and months on your, on your shelf. In fact... If you can, you should free, freeze them. Oh, I also did skillet. You're, like So like a Southerner would hate me. I did skillet cornbread with their blue cornmeal that was uh, delicious. But, um, you know, and I think it is true people are going to Staples now a lot more, A, because, you know, they can sit on your shelf for at least a while. But also, since people are home more, they have more time to do things that take longer to cook. So people are doing more dried bean work. People are doing more... Um, kind of things that they wouldn't otherwise do. But if you're into this, go ahead and get you something like an Instapot or a rice cooker to to do it. Go and get, uh, you know, bend a table, get some of these things. If you've never had some of these, if you've never had Rancho Gordo, be- Gordo beans, delicious. If you've never had uh, the Geechee Boys, those grits, those, uh, what are they called? Red? Jimmy Red. What are they called again? Jimmy Red. Those are delicious. Are they not delicious? They are super delicious. And it's also, it's a really cool story of like, you know, a, a small gardener essentially passing seeds down for generations and generations until it got to Sean Brock, who then got it to Geechee Boy and Anson Mills. Um, to so Ge- so Ge- but the Geechee Boy people, are they actually from the islands or no? Are they Gullah or are they Geechee? Are they same? Are they, are they, are, is, are, is that company from yeah, I think one of they're the from, islands? They're or? from basically there. I'm not 100%, but I think they're from Edisto Island, which is where... Which is where yeah, they, they are from yeah. Edisto Island. Oh, yeah, it's right, because, John, you've worked with all those people, right? John's part of the Museum of Food and Drink, has worked with these yeah, people. Yeah, we didn't get to to work with the Geechee Boy folks, but when we did do a research trip down through there, we did pick up a bunch of their products and brought them back up. And, yeah, they're super tasty. They're doing really awesome, awesome stuff. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, go go get that stuff. And people have more time to cook, so cook. And so I would say thank you very much. And I would say um, so bentotable.com, B-E-N-T-O-T-A-B-L-E.com is the website. Um, and we are doing this thing with HRN where if you use the code HRN when you check out, it's a, there's a little discount code place on the checkout page on the right side. Um, you, you'll get 20 bucks off your first month of the subscriptions, which are themselves uh, $59.99 a month. 
and um, we'll donate 10 bucks to HRN. Sweet. All right. Well, there you have it. Next week, uh, we'll do the Book of Edible Nuts and the Book of Spices by my uh, by Frederick Rosengarten and maybe Mechanization Takes Command by Siegfried Gideon. Uh, if you want to have Ben back ask specific questions about stuff that he's um, selling, I'm sure he'd be willing to do that. Absolutely. Otherwise, we'll see you next week on The Cooking Issues. Cooking Issues is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.